0: Well, it's great to see everybody here this morning, especially wonderful this morning. Cheryl and I have been gone for a couple weeks out to New Mexico to the mountains there, and uh, we love to get away, as I know you all do in the summer. It's wonderful to get away and take a vacation, but uh, we always think about you while we're gone. We think about you every Sunday. been praying for Jay these last couple of weeks, and it's great to be back here with you. And I know this is Promotion Sunday, and so I think we have a lot of uh, kids in here today probably who have promoted who are in here in big church. Um, Hopefully they won't uh, wish they were back in Sunday school (laughs) after today promoting. But we we want to welcome all of you here, and we're so glad you're in here with us. And we pray that your time in here with your parents and with us will be a real blessing uh, to you. Um, If you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. Thanks for coming to spend this Lord's day with us. Uh, We finished a series um, a few weeks ago in the book of Nehemiah. We went through the book of Nehemiah this summer, and just kind of let you know where we're headed. In a couple of weeks, I want to begin a series. It'll probably five or six weeks of the 23rd Psalm. One of my favorite parts of the Bible, um, it's the, the most famous chapter in the Bible. And I pray it'll be a real blessing to you. The study's already blessed me immensely. So that's what we're going to do for a few weeks beginning in this fall is look at the 23rd Psalm. We'll start that in a couple of weeks. Uh, But this morning, I want to bring a message from Luke chapter 7, uh, just kind of a a one-time message here from this passage. If you'll turn there with me, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 36 through 50. Now some of you may have heard the story from uh, the football coach Bum Phillips. I thought you guys might like this as football season's kind of ramping up. He was uh, the coach for many years of the Houston Oilers and um, Bum Phillips one time when you know the season's getting going and he's just all immersed in football, it's all he can think about and all he's doing, his wife said uh, to him she said, "Bum, I really think that you love football more than you love me." And he, he kind of paused for a minute and thought and he said, "Well," he said, I really do love football more than I love you, but he said, uh, but I love you more than I love basketball. (laughs) Probably not much of a consolation, right? But I thought about that story because sadly, like old bum Phillips at times, uh, we can love the wrong things or we can fail to love the right things enough. Uh, Love is the most important thing in the world, specifically love for Jesus Christ. In fact, what did Jesus say? The the greatest commandment is you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Nothing in this life trumps loving Jesus. But if we're honest, every one of us here this morning have to admit that our love for Jesus can sometimes wane. Um, Our our affection for Christ can, can atrophy. I was reading a book, um, I don't know, a year or two ago by Phil Reichen. It's a very simple book called Loving Jesus More. And near the beginning of the book, he kind of frames the, the question this way. He says, if we say that we want to love Jesus more, or that we ought to love him more, whether you want to or not, then we're admitting we do not love Jesus as much as we should. Logically, the only people who can love Jesus more are people who love him less. And unfortunately, This is true for all of us. Then he says this, as we look back, we may realize there was a time when we were more in love with Jesus than we are today. Maybe it was the time when we first came to Christ in repentance and faith. We were so happy to receive the gift of life that Jesus gave us, that he was the sole object of our affection. Or maybe we felt more that way later on. God helped us. He healed us. He rescued us. He provided for us. And we could only respond with loving gratitude. Our hearts were moved in worship or humbled by the amazing gifts we had received. And it was natural to say, I love you, Jesus, for loving me the way you do. Perhaps that moment has long since passed. Now life is filled with so many affections. All the other things we say that we love. The latest video game, our beverage of choice, a favorite hobby, the hometown team. We still love Jesus to some extent, but he's like the old backpack we're comfortable with, but no longer excited about. Or maybe he's like the crush we had in high school, and now it's hard to remember how we could have been so infatuated. If we're totally honest, we have to admit that we love our Savior less that may be where some of you are this morning. Your, your love for Jesus has just kind of gone cold and it's waned and it's atrophied a bit. And that's where Luke chapter 7 comes in. Luke 7 is a passage about loving Jesus Christ. And it's about loving Jesus Christ more. I've titled this message this morning, a More Love uh, to Thee, from the old hymn by that title. Let me read these verses for us, beginning in Luke chapter 7 verse 36. This is one of the great scenes in all the Bible. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman who is touching him is, that she is a sinner. Then Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which one of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your home. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, and he who's forgiven a little uh, loves little." And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, may the spirit of truth speak to each of our hearts this morning uh, from his word. I was reading uh, some articles a while back, and I, I ran across an article by John Piper. And in the article, Piper tells a story uh, from his days back in seminary, and I want to read this story to you that he tells. He says, one of the most memorable moments of my seminary days was during the school year 1968 to 69 at Fuller Seminary on the third level of the classroom building just after a class on systematic theology. A group of us were huddled around James Morgan the young theology teacher who was saying something about the engagement of Christians in social justice. I don't remember what I said, but he looked me right in the eye and he said, John, I love Jesus Christ. It was like a thunderclap in my heart. A strong, intelligent, mature, socially engaged man had just said out loud in front of a dozen men, I love Jesus Christ. He was not preaching. He was not pronouncing on any issue. He was not singing in church. He was not trying to get a job. He was not being recorded. He was telling me that he loved Jesus. And Piper says this, the echo of that thunderclap is still sounding in my heart. That was 40 years ago. There are a thousand things I don't remember about those days in seminary, but that afternoon remains unforgettable. And all he said was, John, I love Jesus Christ. And then Piper goes on to say, James Morgan died a year later of stomach cancer, leaving a wife and four small children behind. His chief legacy in my life was one statement on an afternoon in Pasadena. I love Jesus Christ. Now that's the power of love. That's the power of loving Jesus. And I don't know about you, but for me, there's something about being in the presence of a person who really loves Jesus Christ. It, it's like a, a thunderclap that sounds in our hearts and, and echoes in our minds. And that's what I pray will happen here this morning. And each one of us will experience as we come face to face in our passage here with a woman who loves Jesus Christ, that we will experience a thunderclap in our own hearts that will echo uh, for years to come. Now, I want to unfold these verses this morning under four simple headings. I want to paint the scene for us, then look at the brief story Jesus tells, then kind of the sequel to all of this, and then the significance of it uh, in our lives. We begin here with the scene, and this whole setting in in Luke 7 is one of contrast. Look, Look back at Luke 7, verse 29. When all the people and the tax gatherers heard this, They acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Look at the next verse. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. You have the sinners and the tax gatherers who are receiving Jesus. You have the Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes who are rejecting God's purpose for themselves. So the whole scene here at the outset is a scene of contrast. Now, when we get to our story, there's three main characters involved. There's Simon, he's the Pharisee. There's this sinner who's probably a prostitute, and then there's the Savior who is a prophet. Uh, This Pharisee, we know his name's Simon because down in verse 40, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Uh, The sinner here is a woman, again, probably um, a prostitute, but she's an unnamed woman and she never says a word. I mean, the, the silence is deafening here, but uh, her, her actions speak a thousand words. This anonymous woman, we don't know her name. She never says one thing. She just moves about and acts in silence. And then the third character, obviously the main character, is the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Now the background of this scene revolves around a Pharisee inviting Jesus over to his house uh, for dinner. I was uh, reading a book last week and the author pointed out that Luke's Gospel focuses more than any other gospel on the meals of Jesus. In fact, uh, the man said that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either uh, going going to a meal, he's eating a meal, or he's coming from a meal. And as I heard that, I thought Jesus is my kind of man. <laughs> you know, he's always going around eating, right? But I think there is a beautiful picture for us here though of what happens when we have a meal around the table. Um, I think there's an an intimacy and a fellowship at a meal that we really don't experience in any other uh, setting. And I want to encourage all of us to take advantage of that in our own homes that God has given to us. Because Jesus was always involved in, in meals with other people. Now, Jesus had probably just uh, preached in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and this man Simon invites Jesus to his house. Now, why did he invite Jesus? Well, probably because Jesus' popularity is rising. He's kind of a celebrity, and Simon has heard probably that Jesus is a prophet because uh, down uh, in the passage in verse 39, he mentions the idea of Jesus being a prophet. So probably he just wants to have Jesus over and just kind of check him out for himself. Now, Jesus accepts the invitation, and we know there's going to be fireworks because eating with Jesus was always exciting. Now, when Jesus arrived at the home, he would have done what you always did in that day. He would have taken off his sandals, um, entered the courtyard area, because well-to-do people in that day had a large courtyard in the center of their house. And weather permitting, they would eat out there in the courtyard. And in the courtyard, there would have been a a big U-shaped table And uh, the tables back then were only about 12 to 18 inches off the floor. So you didn't pull up to the chair like we do, uh, uh, pull up to the the, the, uh, table in a chair and sit there. What you did is you would set your left elbow on this low table and you would uh, put your feet out away from the table. And that's how We see in this story, the woman is able to come up to the feet of Jesus and begin to wash his feet. He's not sitting at a a table with his his feet underneath it. They're they're protruding backwards. So you'd sit there on your left elbow and you'd use your right hand and get different parts of the food and dip it in different things and eat and they would fellowship uh, there. So they're all getting ready there for a great meal and the scene is set and everything's going just as expected. But then something very unusual and socially unacceptable occurs. A woman comes out of nowhere. She comes up to the feet of Jesus and begins to wash his feet with her tears. Now we ask the question, who is this woman and where in the world did she come from? Back in that day when they would have a banquet like this, rich, important, successful people were invited. If you weren't wealthy or successful or important, you were never invited to these these, uh, gatherings. But the door was left open so that outsiders could come in and they could sit around the wall of the courtyard and listen to the conversation of the important people. It was kind of believed in that day that you know, these poor people, if they could come in there and maybe hear some pearls of wisdom you know, dropping from the lips of these wealthy people, maybe they could pick up a few pointers that would help them out in life. So it was a, a very divided uh, culture in that day. So these people that were there, they weren't guests, but they weren't really intruders either. They were just kind of observers of what was happening. But they weren't allowed to talk, they could only listen. And after the banquet was over, they could beg or they could get the leftovers that were there. That that was their purpose. And women were not invited to these banquets. In fact, Jewish rabbis were not allowed to talk to women in public or even to eat with them. So, So it's in this environment that this woman appears. This anonymous woman comes and she crashes this party. Now, with this woman anointing the feet of Jesus, some people have equated this setting with the similar one in Matthew 26, uh, Mark 14, and John 12. All three of the other gospels have a scene near the end of Jesus' life where a woman comes and anoints his feet with oil. This is not the same as that event because that happened in the last week of Jesus' life. A lot of people have also thought that this was Mary Magdalene. But this probably is not Mary because if you look over in Luke chapter 8 and verse 2, uh, Luke introduces some women here and he mentions a woman who was healed of evil spirit who's called Mary Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. So it seems like here in chapter 8 verse 2, he's introducing Mary Magdalene for the first time. So this woman here is just some uh, anonymous woman an anonymous prostitute, former prostitute, who's unclean and totally out of place. Now, she's learned that Jesus is there in the house of Simon the Pharisee, and she brings a vial of perfume, which was probably one of the tools of the trade that she would used to seduce men. But sometime before this, this woman had met Jesus and had put her faith in him. So this isn't the event here that we're reading about where she comes to believe and trust in Jesus. This now is her coming to show her gratitude to Jesus for what He's done. We don't know how long it was before. It could have been earlier that day. It could have been a week earlier, a month earlier. Maybe sometimes she was standing in the background or in the shadows listening to Jesus preach. and She believed in Him as the Messiah, as the Son of God who could take away her sins. Or maybe she had some kind of a direct encounter uh, with Jesus. But what we know is this event is an expression to Jesus of her love for his uh, forgiveness. She's pouring out and lavishing her love and her gratitude upon Jesus for the forgiveness of her sins. Now, everything this woman does here in this scene would have been offensive in that culture. I mean, she breaks every social taboo, if you will. First of all, she comes up to Jesus' feet. He's lying there on his elbow on this table with his feet sticking out. And uh, these people are around the walls. Women weren't even supposed to be there, but certainly you didn't come up to the table. She walks up to the feet of Jesus or probably comes on her knees up to his feet. The second thing she does is she lets her hair down. Now, that's difficult for us to grasp the significance of this, but a woman in that day could be divorced for letting her hair down in public. The only time a woman let her hair down was it was in the presence of her husband uh, in private. Um, it, this was something shocking. I mean, it, it's spoken of in the Jewish Talmud. Um, I've read several things on this. I don't want to be too graphic this morning, but the only thing you could kind of Uh, really uh, equate this with today to kind of let us understand what it's like is it would be the equivalent of a woman uncovering her breasts in public today in our culture that's how shocking this was in that day she comes and she lets down her hair and then she touches the feet of jesus now the pharisees would have considered this woman to be unclean and so when she touched jesus They would believe that she transferred the uncleanness to Jesus. So the next time Jesus put one of his hands in the common food, the banquet would have been over. It was all over, and nobody else was going to touch anything on that uh, table that Jesus had touched. But, But the Scripture here details every move of this woman, and there are five action words here that all denote continuous action. So it gives us the impression that this took some time. She so she was standing at his feet and behind him at his feet, and she was weeping in verse 38. Now, that word doesn't mean just to kind of whimper or drop a couple of tears. The word literally means to wet. It was used in that day of rain showers. It's like this woman is just gushing with tears at the feet of Jesus. And those tears were mingling with the dirt on his feet. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, spoke, speaking of this woman, called her tears, heart water. It's a graphic description, isn't it? It's heart water. It's water that's pouring out of her heart. It's tears of gratitude that are soaking the the feet of the Savior. This woman is overwhelmed by the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. So this is a crying of a sinner who's been redeemed. And then it says in verse 38, and she kept wiping them. Again, there's no towel, so she lets her hair down. And the hair that she'd used to lure men is now used to wipe the feet of the Lord Jesus. And it says she kept kissing his feet. This is an intense form of the word to kiss. It's used of the, the father of the prodigal son when he returned, when he embraced him and he kissed his son. So she's just kissing these wet, dirty feet of Jesus. And it says she was anointing them with perfume. She announced him with an entire vial, which would have been one year's wages, and the aroma must have filled the courtyard. There's this woman is anointing the feet of Jesus. And then at the end of verse 39, it says, she was touching him. She just keeps keeps on touching Jesus. So there she is, this woman. She's got stringy hair. It's a mixture of mud and tears, a swollen face. Uh, probably a a runny, snotty nose, if you will. I like what one author I read this week says. She was a self-forgetful mess. No words. She never says one thing, just silence. But it's one of the most beautiful scenes in all the Bible. And here Simon is, the Pharisee, and all of this is revolting and disgusting to him. That's the heart of a Pharisee. He would have been happy if Jesus would have shoved this woman and kicked her out of the place and told her to go away. Notice verse 39 when the Pharisee who'd invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet. Now, in the Greek, this conditional statement here is a contrary to fact condition, which means you could translate it like this if this man were a prophet, and he's not. In other words, Simon's convinced now this guy isn't a prophet. Because he says, he would know what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. So Simon, who had his hopes up that Jesus was some prophet, says, this guy's not a prophet. If he was a prophet, he'd know what's going on here. So Simon, and again, this is a, a sign of Phariseeism. He thinks he has the whole situation sized up. Simon thinks he knows who he is. He's righteous. he knows who jesus is he's not a prophet and he knows who this woman is she's a sinner but the splendid irony here is is simon thinks he knows everything that's going on and he doubts that jesus is a prophet but jesus knows exactly what simon is thinking because he's going to go on here and tell a parable or a story that highlights the fact that he knows exactly what's going through simon's mind so Rather than Jesus not knowing what's going on, Jesus knows who she is and he knows who Simon is. He knows everything that's happening. Now that brings us to the story. Verses 40 to 43. It's very simple, very short. It's the shortest of Jesus' parables. It's 26 words in Greek. And Jesus tells this story to reveal why this woman loves him so much. In other words, what is it that caused this woman to love Christ so much? And he says in verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. Um, A denarius in that day was one day's wages. So 500 days wages. The other one owed 50. And then verse 42, when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So you have two debtors, one owes 500 days' wages, one owes 50 days' wages, and when they're unable to repay and they're totally bankrupt, the twist to the story is the moneylender does the unthinkable. He totally discharges the debts. And obviously, this very simple parable, the meaning is simple. The moneylender is God, the debt here is sin, and the debtors are sinners of different levels. And of course, in this story, Simon would see himself as the lesser sinner and the woman as the greater one. In fact, if he saw himself as a sinner at all. It's not picturing the idea so much that people are greater and lesser sinners, but it's our consciousness and awareness of that fact. Simon has no awareness of it, whereas this woman knows she's a 500 denarii sinner. And then Jesus asked this penetrating, piercing question at the end of verse 42, verse 42, when they were unable to repay, he forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? And notice what Simon answers in verse 43. You don't get the idea that Simon was real excited about giving the answer here, do you? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one he forgave more. It's like, come on, Simon, you know the answer to this. There's no suppose to it, right? It's the one that he forgave more. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. Now we come to the sequel to this in verse 44. Now, I love this here, and we kind of, we can miss these things in reading the Bible if we're not careful. And turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon. Now, have you ever had somebody talk to you when they're looking at somebody else? It's kind of unsettling, isn't it? Kind of what's going on. Jesus looks at the woman, and I think he looks at the woman the whole time but the whole time he's looking at the woman, he's talking to Simon. And what he does here is he drives home the point of this story by noting three contrasts between Simon and this woman who is a sinner. And he he highlights three things in that day that weren't required, but would be viewed as a special courtesy to a guest like Jesus. And they were all things that Simon failed to do that the woman did that showed her love for Jesus. First of all, you'll notice he says in verse 44, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Back in that day, he should have ordered a servant to wash the feet of Jesus. He failed to do that. And the woman did it with her tears. He said, you gave me no kiss. Back in that day, when a, even between two men, they would kiss on the cheek as a sign of, of greeting. And Simon hadn't given Jesus that. And this woman is down there just repeatedly kissing the feet of Jesus. And then he says in verse 46, You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. When someone would come to your home, you'd take a drop of, of oil or perfume sometimes and put it on their head, and it was kind of a, a, to create a, a, a good aroma. He hadn't done that, but this woman had uh, broken a whole vial of expensive perfume uh, to anoint Jesus. So he's highlighting these things that Simon failed to do that this woman has done that shows that she loves Jesus and that she certainly is this 500 denarii sinner who loves the Lord Jesus more. Now, in verses 47 to 50, Jesus makes some statements here. And he says in verse 47, and for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, the problem in verse 47 is a lot of people read this verse and believe that we're saved by love. In other words, we're saved by loving Jesus. Because it says there, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much but I don't think that the love here is causal, it's consequential. In other words, the love here is not the cause of her forgiveness, it's the consequence or the fruit of it. Because the passage here makes clear that forgiveness comes by faith. Now we know this because forgiveness Uh, Comes before love in the parable that Jesus told, right? To put the love before the forgiveness would contradict the teaching of the parable that Jesus gave that they were forgiven, and then the one who's forgiven most loves the most. Also in verse 50, Jesus says it clearly, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So it's faith, always throughout Scripture, that connects us with God and His salvation. The love here is the consequence of this. So love is the consequence, not the cause. It's the result, if you will, not the reason. It's the fruit of her salvation. It's not uh, the root of it. Uh, We're not saved by weeping and crying and by some emotional experience of love. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And sometime previous to this, This woman had put her faith in Jesus Christ as her Messiah and as her Savior. And now she's expressing uh, her love to the Lord Jesus. And I love verse 48. This is the first time that Jesus speaks to this woman. And he says to her, your sins have been forgiven. And in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. You could translate it, you stand forgiven. She'd been forgiven in the past, but she stands still in the forgiveness of Jesus. I I love this passage because all the people in this woman's life were constantly saying to her, shame on you. But Jesus comes along and says, shame off you, if you will. He removes her sins and he removes her shame. Jesus is not only just a prophet, he's God because he forgives sins. Look at the, the buzz in the crowd as Jesus says this. All those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? This woman can walk away with total peace in her heart because she's forgiven. Jesus says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's reading a story about uh, Woody Allen. Uh, the, the famous filmmaker, he was being interviewed by a French television station years ago. And in the hour-long interview, one of the, inter- the interviewer asked him, do you believe in God? And uh, his response was, uh, no, he said, I'm an atheist. But then he went on later to say, in my better moments, though, I'm just an agnostic. Then the reporter asked him an even more unusual question. The reporter said this, if there were a God and he could say one thing to you, what would you like to hear him say? And Woody Allen hung his head and said, you are forgiven. If there is a God and we could hear him say one thing to us, what would we want to hear him say? We'd want to hear him say, you are forgiven. And I know many of us here this morning have heard the Lord Jesus say that to us because we believed in him and trusted in him. But if you've never done that, you can hear him say that to you this morning in your heart right now if you'll call upon him. Wouldn't it be wonderful this morning to hear the the Lord Jesus say down in your heart and in your mind, your sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Look, your need and my need in this life is forgiveness. And the only one who can come and cancel our sin debt is the Lord Jesus. I love the old saying, I've used it many times, but Jesus didn't come to rub it in, He came to rub it out. That's the good news of the gospel. He came to rub it out. And you can receive his forgiveness this morning if you'll trust in him and believe in him. And you can leave here this morning in peace, a peace you've never experienced in your life. Well, the final point this morning here of all this is the significance. We've already made the point in several ways, but I want to drive it home even more. This this story, this passage teaches us that love is the response to forgiveness. The forgiveness by Jesus is the moral dynamic that produces love for Christ. This is the power of gospel forgiveness. Gospel forgiveness is the dynamic that causes us to love Jesus Christ more and more. Love for Jesus in your life, loving Him more and more and more, comes from recognizing that you are a bankrupt debtor who has been forgiven much by Him. It's by constantly going to the the foot of the cross and recognizing the magnitude of our debt and realizing that Jesus graciously forgave us and he wiped it all away. You and I have a debt we can never repay. We are hopelessly bankrupt spiritually. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we could become the righteousness of God in him. There's an irony in this story to me, a powerful irony, and that is Jesus is telling this story about a moneylender and people who are in debt, a, a 500 denarii sinner and a 50 denarii sinner. how they're both graciously forgiven. But the only reason that God the Father, the moneylender can forgive these debtors is because the debt has been paid by someone else. And the one who's telling this story in some months after this will go to the cross at Calvary to pay the debt so that these debtors can be forgiven. Because the debt has to be paid by somebody. It can't just be written off. So the one who's telling this story is the one who a few months later will pay the full price of humanity's sin debt. And he's the only one who can cancel the debt and make forgiveness possible. Look, for you and for me, we will love Jesus Christ in direct proportion to the recognition of our debt and his forgiveness. If you have little sense of indebtedness, you'll have little love. If you have a great sense of indebtedness, you will have great love. I'd ask you this morning, do you, do you sense maybe a coldness for Christ creeping into your heart and life? It happens to all of us. It happens frequently. But we need to, to, to deal with it and we need to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I feel a distance in, in my love for you and, and come to him and bow down before him and uh, have that love reignited in our heart and our life. I was reading a sermon this last week by Dr. S. Lewis Johnson. He was the pastor for many years down at Believer's Chapel in Dallas. He was the head of the, Old Testament de- uh, the New Testament department at Dallas Seminary for many years. Uh, a man I, I greatly admired. I've heard him; had the privilege to hear him preach many times. And I was really helped. I just read this sermon of his kind of for my own edification and enjoyment this week. But at the very end of his sermon, he said this, If you find coldness in your heart as I often find coldness in my heart. Now that encouraged me because I thought even Dr. Johnson sometimes had coldness in his heart for Christ. So real transparency there. But he said, when that happens, I go home. I get down by my bed and I say, oh God, forgive me for this coldness in my heart. Create within me by your spirit a warmth toward you and toward the word of God. And I go to the scriptures and it's not long before the Holy Spirit has worked within my heart for he continually works. He stirred my dispositions. He's given me light and caused me to respond. And sometimes the tears begin to flow. That's what Jesus is talking about. The man who knows how much he has been forgiven loves Whenever you sense that in your life, that there's a coldness coming into your love for Jesus Christ, I love what Dr. Johnson says, go home, get down on your knees beside your bed, say, God, forgive me for this coldness in my heart. Begin to to read the scriptures and allow the the Spirit of God to work in your life because the one who loves much, who's been forgiven much, loves much. There's an old song, uh, we sang it a lot when I was growing up, More Love to Thee by uh, Elizabeth Prentice you know, More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Some of you may not know this. Elizabeth Prentice w- wrote one of the uh, best-selling books of the 19th century. It was a, a novel for women. Um, a lot of women still read it today. Um, she had a- an interesting life. I actually read a biography about her a few months ago, but she's also the author of that song, More Love to Thee. And near the end of the biography about her, there's a statement about her that kind of summarizes her life, and it's this. To love Christ more is the deepest need, the constant cry of my soul. Down in the bowling alley, out in the woods, on my bed and out driving, when I'm happy and busy, when I'm sad and idle, the whisper keeps coming up for more love, more love, more love. Now, when I read that, that kind of just leaped off the page to me because I experienced that same thing in my life a lot. She says, look, if you're in the bowling alley, you're out in the woods, you're in your bed, you're driving, you're, wherever you are, there's like a whisper down in the life of a believer, I think, constantly. More love, more love, more love. We need to love Jesus Christ more. And I pray that every one of us here will sense that whisper every day. And that we will love the Lord Jesus more and more and more as we think often and deeply about His gracious forgiveness of our sin debt. When we were helpless to repay, He came and He washed it away. One final thought here this morning. Um, A lot of you have heard me quote Donald Gray Barnhouse a lot, a great preacher. Um, He was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church. Um, Had a a tremendous impact. In fact, uh, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, I just quoted earlier, um, he got saved listening to Donald Gray Barnhouse preach back in the 1930s. But Barnhouse died in 1960 at the age of 60. Um, he had a, a malignant brain tumor, and of course, it obviously began to affect his thinking and his ability to, to uh, carry out the normal functions of his life. Uh, but Barnhouse, his first wife, had died, and he'd married a, remarried a woman named Margaret. And uh, Margaret gathered the family together there, and uh, Barnhouse uh, had a favorite song. Uh, The song, the lyrics were written by a, a great Scottish Presbyterian preacher named Robert Murray McShane. Some of you probably heard of him. He died when he was just 29 years of age. Such a godly man, they called him the saintly McShane. But one of the the verses, in fact, the final verse in that song that Barnhouse's family sung to him by McShane says this, when I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know not till then how much I owe. And Barnhouse's family sang that song to him. He died not long after that but his wife tells the story that right before he died, he was saying she could see his lips moving and he hadn't really said anything for some time. She got down as close as she could get. She could hear him whispering, I owe, I owe. He'd heard them sing that song. I thought, man, what a way to go into glory. (laughs) Now, it wasn't a sense that I owe, like we owe God to pay him back for our salvation. We can't do that. We're debtors, we're bankrupt. We can't pay God anything for our salvation. He doesn't ask us to. What we do owe to him is a a debt of love and a debt of gratitude for what he's done. What a way to slip away from this life and go into eternity like Donald Gray Barnhouse, thinking about the debt of gratitude and love that he owed uh, to Jesus Christ. It's not till then, though, that we'll really know how much we owe. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you this morning, and I pray that every one of us here can confess that we love Jesus Christ. We thank you for our Lord Jesus, that he paid our sin debt. When we were totally unable to repay, he graciously forgave us through faith in him, trusting in him and believing in him. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Jesus, that they'll realize they need forgiveness. And he's the only one who can cancel and wash away their debt. Father, help us to be conscious this morning of just how much we've been forgiven. I pray that every one of us here will readily admit and recognize we are five hundred denarii sinners. Deliver us from the delusion, the blindness, and the coldness of a waning love. And Father, help us who've been forgiven much to love much more love to Thee. Father, I thank you for every one of us here who know you. That we can go home tonight. We can put our head on our pillow. We can experience the peace that only you can provide through your son, the Lord Jesus. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen.